You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities, the show where Emily and I read the Bible, talk about it, and record it. Um, that's what we do around here. Yeah. I always we are, uh, wonder where you're going to take that, you know, where we read uh, it, we talk about it, we release it into the wild. That, <laughs> I mean, that, make, that makes two of us. <laughs> I mean, I, I just start talking and I have no idea where it's going sometimes. Um, well, Which is why sometimes we have to start these over, but... <laughs> We're doing that less. I, don't know, I feel less. pretty good about this one. Yeah, we we just kind of. I, I think we kind of just accepted that we have to jump in and just pretend like we know what we're doing. So yeah, and then we get this audience who pretends with us, and that's great because then it almost feels real. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, if if people could could keep treating us like professionals, that would be great. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm kidding. Um, yeah. Our audience is actually. I mean pretty interactive and i feel like we're friends with most of them even though we've never met most of them right yeah no. um, be- it, I, well at least at least the ones in the paddle store um I, and, and even some that aren't um you know we we have a we've got a good crew of people and and i, I don't feel like we're unapproachable so when i <laughs> when i say treat us like professionals that's i'm worried about people being like oh we can't no we i don't I hope I never put out the vibe that I can't just, someone can't, you know, just ask me things. One of the things that still drives Ty crazy after all these years of marriage is we can go out to eat and I'm the person that the waitress or waiter, waiter tells me their entire life story. So I don't mm-hmm. think approachability mm-hmm. is our problem at all. <laughs> so. No. Yeah. We, um, uh, yeah, Mickey and I, uh, that happens to us less now that we have kids. Um, cause usually we're kind of like involved with corralling, corralling mm-hmm. children and, and we're also like, let's, let's get the order in, but we're on a, we're on a timer, but we don't know what the timer looks like before the kids start melting <laughs> right. down. Um, so, you know, that, that, um, not that I, not that I think that makes me necessarily unapproachable, but I think we've, I've probably just been less attentive, <laughs> less attentive to the wait staff. And uh, if that's been you, at, and I've been at your restaurant recently, I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, uh, speaking as a former server at a restaurant, uh, you know, you just kind of accept people with kids are just doing their best to keep them from, you know, like you said, that meltdown. And you just appreciate parents who are who are actually aware of what their children are doing. So, <laughs> yeah. And by meltdown, I just mean when they get really bored. They've actually done really, really well oh, the last few years. Absolutely. They're kind of getting past that like toddler antsy yeah. phase. They're just really inquisitive children too, which can be its own sort of chaos. It's not bad chaos; mm-hmm. it's just chaos. So, yeah, it's good, 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 and bad, and uh, <laughs> indifferent sometimes. Yeah. So. <laughs> Anyway, well, that, that being said, um, speaking of children, uh, we got I, David's child, Solomon. We're talking that about him. That was almost him. smooth. No, not at all. <laughs> Don't even try. I know what I'm working with. Yeah, we're, so we're starting on chapter five, and um, you know, this is Solomon's biggest achievement, his most celebrated achievement, and it is building the temple. And I think if anybody, you know, the things they know about Solomon probably go in the order of he's wise, he had a bunch of wives, and he built the temple. You know, it makes the top three on every list. Um, And this is the first time in the Samuel Kings Collective that we find out that Solomon plans to build the temple. Before this, we had no clue that he actually even had it on his radar, unless we're flipping over to Chronicles. And Chronicles tells us, yes, absolutely, Solomon and David were talking about it. They were making plans. David had you know, given specific directions to Solomon. But in the Samuel King saga, there's like no mention of Solomon even contemplating it. And so... All of a sudden, we're we're confronted with, hey, yeah, he is actually going to do this. 
And this is the son who's going to fulfill that prophecy back in 2 Samuel 7. And, um, you know, and you kind of got to wonder why the writer of uh, Kings decided to do this. Um, why would they decide to, to hold off on making this announcement? You know, was he trying to build some suspense, trying to, you know, really hook his audience into the story? Uh, because you know, the announcement that David's going to have a son is in chapter 7. And then right after that, you have the David and Bathsheba story. You have Amnon and Tamar. We have Absalom's rebellion, Adonijah's um, attempt to displace Solomon. And each of these stories that are told after the prophecy, the announcement in 2 Samuel 7, we're dealing with a potential heir to the throne. Now, we take it as, you know, Solomon, obviously, he's going to be David's heir. We just assume that. We don't really stop and think about how this was not something that was set in stone by any stretch of the imagination until it was done. Because the heir apparent would have been Amnon because he was the oldest. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, Absalom kills him. And Absalom actually seems to have the right character and mindset, at least in the beginning, to be the king. And then Adoniah, I mean, he, he proclaims himself king. So Solomon is not somebody who's at the front of the pack for this race. Because, right. I mean, there was so much scandal around his birth. I mean, questions of who his father was. Was it David? Was it Beth? Oh, was it Uriah? Uh, even though the other child that had been David's child, well, that had been conceived while Bathsheba was still married to Uriah, had died, there's still going to be people who want to, to bring that little doubt in, especially if they don't want Solomon to be the one who rules Israel. But the stories, mm -hmm. you know, they, they talk about the heirs in succession, but then it also deals with their rebellion and their deaths. And so we, we have this kind of, you know, this roller coaster ride that if you don't know, if you haven't grown up in church with the flannel graphs, if you haven't, you know, heard the story told a million different ways, you don't know how it ends. It really would be quite dramatic and suspenseful as a reader. And so um, I, I think that maybe that's what the writer was trying to do here in Samuel, because he almost, you know, obscures that announcement in Second Samuel 7 with all the drama. And um, the I'm trying to uh, find my notes, but the the... The reason why all of this is important and, and comes into play is because temple building is the work of kings. And mm -hmm. the one who is the king is going to build the temple. And the, the kings took a great, and not just in Israel, I mean, all ancient kings took great pride in what the temple, the place of worship they built for their particular deity looked like. I mean, that's what most of our, or not maybe not most, but a lot of our archaeological finds today from this time period are. They're, they're centers of worship for God or their um, graves for the kings who are also considered to be gods. So mm -hmm. it, it's a significant event whenever a king builds a temple. And <clears throat> so by the time we get to Solomon, um, we you almost have this question of, will the prophecy be fulfilled? If you even remember what the prophecy is. And mm -hmm. so with everyone, um, what, what everyone who knew, what everyone knew when this book was written is that this is what they expected of a king was that he would step forward and he would be, build a temple. So they weren't really wondering if Solomon would build a temple. Uh, they just wondered if Solomon was going to be the king who did it. So, anyhow, we're going to pick up in verse one. Uh, it reads, "Now the Hiram, the king of now Hiram, the king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon when he heard that they had anointed him king in the place of his father. For Hiram always loved David." Okay, so first, let's just clear up this little bit of a mystery. This is not Hiram Abiph. Now, some people are going to know exactly who that is. Others are going to have questions. If you've studied anything about Masonry, Freemasons, the Scottish Rite, the Shriners, all of this, you're going to know that the founder of all of these organizations is believed to be Hiram Abiff. Now, um, this is not who this is. We're going to come into another character 
that the Hiram Abiff persona was based on. And I say persona because I believe he's a totally fictitious uh, creation that he has no basis in reality, but we'll get there. Um, so, but let's, let's clear that up. That's not who we're talking about in this passage, even though the name is the same. And so if you go online, and this is what I find to be really interesting. And one thing I, I do think we should mention because it's a great teaching moment. If you go online and you look up critics of Freemasonry versus Masonic sources themselves, when you find commentary on this passage, Christian sources are going to tell you that this is what that Hiram Abiff, who this Hiram Abiff character is based on. Christian sources get it wrong, okay? And and I'm not saying that, oh yeah, so the Masons get it right. No, I'm just saying if you're going to talk about something that you are opposed to or you want to critique, at least present them accurately. Don't give, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, don't give me a critique that shows me you know nothing about what you're critiquing. Because mm-hmm. every Masonic mm-hmm. source would say, absolutely not. This is not Hiram, King of Tyre. This is another Hiram that we're going to talk about later. A- and they made that very clear. So who looks more credible to people who don't know any better? It, it's the Masons. It's the ones who actually tell their own story correctly. So if somebody gives you their story and they say, this is what I believe, or this is what I think, or this is what happens. When you critique their story, don't misrepresent their story. Respond mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. what they've told you. Because, it, <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> yeah. No, I, it, it just, it drives me nuts. I mean, we see, I see this a lot with a, a, a lot of, uh, quote unquote Christian apologist mm-hmm. and they do that they misrepresent people in ways that are practically criminal. Yeah. And then argue against their misrepresentation as opposed to arguing what the people actually said. And I I've seen it hundreds and hundreds of times and it you know, and this is not to say all apologists are bad, but I, I think that there's a, a I don't know. I should I should probably just say what I think on here. I'm just going to say this, um, but I, I think there are a certain group of apologists because apologetics began with defending Christianity's right to exist before Roman courts, mm-hmm. right? It basically, saying no, this is we don't believe in the the destructive things we're being accused of, right? And there are. Um, there's a certain group of apologists. I don't know if their group is kind of makes it sound like they all get together and plan this sort of thing, <laughs> but uh, you know they all kind of arrive at these conclusions independently. But there's a certain group of them that I think are still, you know, basically cosplaying or LARPing <laughs> uh, the the idea that there's some kind of that there's more persecution to Christianity in the world than there is, mm-hmm. and it's like they, you know, they're they're running around like Civil War reenactors trying to play like they're their favorite, you know, Civil War soldier, and they've run off the field into everyday life and are screwing things up. I mean, that's probably about the nicest way I can say it, because there's a lot of these guys who just, uh, everything they see is, oh, these pe- this is an attack on, on Christianity. It's attack on, an attack on Christ. And, it, and it's like, okay, and again, I... I don't know if I've said this on an episode before, but uh, on a so much of the quote-unquote culture war, is, is, there, is there attacks on Christianity? Yes, but it's not coming necessarily from the people. And I still am trying to figure out how we got from Father forgive them, for they know not what they do, to these people are the enemy. They wake up and they... Tr- it's, like they, it's honestly like they wake up and look at their planner and say, oh, destroy Christianity. Yes, I had that <laughs> on my planner from uh, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. today. And I will, you know, it, it, it just, I don't, I don't get it. Yeah. And I, and unfortunately, the way that a lot of these uh, people present Christianity, yeah, I wouldn't want it either. Yeah. I, and that's, that's what drives me nuts is they, they say that we worship a loving, you know, they can, they can say the words, we worship a God of love and forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, <laughs> and and of course they're they're in their minds they're defending God's justice and and uh his and his need for his and his holiness yes 
But um, and this need for God's wrath to be appeased by taking it out on people who couldn't defend themselves anyway. Um, and it, and I get that there is the justice side, and I know we've talked about this. If you have too much justice, you you no one has any hope, right? And if we have too much grace, then we have a God who's just kind of made in our own image, and. So I get that there needs to be a balance, but oftentimes the people who are claiming to be apologists who are trying to defend Christianity are representing a Christianity that has no grace and no love. Yeah. And, and it basically, and, and just tearing down not only non-Christians, but any Christian who deviates slightly from any point of doctrine, you know, ter- not even secondary, but tertiary and that that particular apologist holds to not even that yeah. it's yeah not even yeah not even mainline christianity or any other denomination it it can be like some obscure thing he found in the back of you know <laughs> one of the minor prophets that he's completely taking out of context and i you know not I hate to use minor prophets as you know as a <laughs> to downplay it but it's something that no one else has even thought of mm-hmm. and this guy's like this is a salvation issue. And you're like, no, the salvation issue is, is Christ Lord in your life. Right. Um, and that's, that's what it comes down to. But I, I know this is getting kind of long. Uh, <laughs> I'm just letting you rattle. It, my, my notes last longer when you do this. Uh, <laughs> I, I know, but, but it does, it drives me nuts because they will put up the biggest straw man mm-hmm. and, and light it on fire. And, and when you call them out on it, it's like, what's the it's like playing chess with a pigeon yeah They're, they knock all the pieces off the board they knock on the knock all the pieces down poop on the board and strut around like they won yeah i that's it's and it's like guys if this is how you're behaving in public mm-hmm. this is why people don't want to be christians well and i that that's just it i i think we need to remember it's the kindness of the lord that leads to repentance paul says this yeah. and so i think we need to be doing everything in our power to be kind now being kind yeah. uh, can wait. You mean you mean it's the kindness of the Lord? It's it's not our ability to uh, cite court cases and um, legal documents and uh, tell everyone we have to defend the Constitution and <laughs> no. I mean I, I uh, and again I I'm I'm a fairly patriotic person. I I really like the country I live in, mm-hmm. but you know it's it's not the job of the Christian to know more about the Constitution than the Bible. Right. Um, well, and, and, so. I th- and I do think we need to point out, sometimes kindness is setting the limit. Sometimes kindness really is about saying, there's certain things I'm not going to participate in, I'm not going to allow you to bring into my life, and, and I am going to, to call you when you're acting a fool. Uh, that's love, that's kindness, that's someone who cares enough to protect you from you. And now, it has to be done with love and it has right. to be done with compassion. And so sometimes what people are saying isn't necessarily wrong, but sometimes the delivery makes it wrong. And so mm-hmm. if you aren't delivering these words of love and kindness with, or, you know, correction with love and kindness, I should say, it, you aren't helping anyone but make yourself feel superior. And that's mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. helpful because guess what? You're not superior. And if that's what you're going for, you're not doing it for the right reason anyway. So, um, you know, and I can say this because I have to guard against this in my own life. I like being right. I like mm-hmm. being able to point to someone else and saying they're messing up. And so this is something that I deal with on a daily basis. You can ask Ty because he's come on the receiving end of that stick a few times. But you know, and, and the thing is, the reason why, getting back to our story, and this does tie in, the reason why people want this to be Hiram, king of Tyre, is because of Ezekiel 38. And what happens in Ezekiel 38, let me make sure I got that correct, 28, not 38, sorry, 28. The king of Tyre is identified as that Satan figure. We mm-hmm. have that whole thing about Satan falling and being in the garden. And and so if you've got the king of Tyre, Hiram, the king of Tyre, who is now the founder of this evil organization, it's wonderful fodder and fuel for the, for the Christians to use against Masons. Because, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's just a hop, skip, and a jump to say, hey, mas- uh, Masonry is satanic. Now, 
whether or not that's a proper conclusion, we're going to save that for another show. And I've got somebody who studied a lot more to, to talk about this. But the point being, if you want to argue against masonry, don't do it this way. Find better yeah. ways to do it. Find more accurate yeah. ways to do it. Yeah, if you want to argue against anything, mm -hmm. find, make sure you are arguing the, the point of contention as, uh, you know, I listen to, I like to listen to Leighton Flowers, <laughs> and he, that's one thing I can say is he definitely, you know, he gets fired up sometimes, but I've never heard him be mean. I've heard him get a little snarky on occasion, but right. anytime he thinks, even anytime he even thinks he's crossed the line, he apologizes. Yeah. And he owns it, and he does better. But, you know, he's never, in my mind, said anything that would be, be anything that I would consider being just completely false right? Um, about anyone else. And I don't think he's, so he's that, never caustic. That's probably the best. He's never caustic. Um, like you said, he, he's, he's very, uh, sometimes, you know, yeah, you can tell he gets, like, you know, worked up on a topic, and he gets passionate, and sometimes a little bit of that start creeps him, but it, it's not like he set out to just dismantle someone because he enjoys it. He really focuses yeah. on the argument. So, yeah. Not not affiliated with him. I just like to listen to him mm -hmm. because he explains things patiently and with lots of grace. Exactly. Exactly. And, anyway. you know, <laughs> so, and, you know, the, we talk about in the Bible, you know, you know with them by their fruits. And so when I, when I hear Light and I hear him talking and I hear his high respect for the word and I hear his grace and the compassion with which he speaks about these issues compared to the people he's usually, you know, um, arguing against or the arguments, mm -hmm. <laughs> those who are supporting the arguments he's arguing against. Um, two different trees there, guys. Just just pay attention. Uh, you'll see what I mean. But, okay, yep. so the other point we need to point out is even though Hiram here is the king of Tyre, he's not the king of Tyre found in Ezekiel. The timelines do not add up. So, uh, and the the king of Tyre in Ezekiel is not a person, okay? I think that's the other thing we need to notice. This is a mm -hmm. spiritual being, and if we ever get to Ezekiel, um, God save me. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, and, and also it's, I mean, we do tend to do that with biblical names as we conflate people. I mean, it's not uncommon. There's, you know, not uncommon nowadays to have people with the same name as the predecessor, and especially in royal families. Yeah, exactly. Well, and this, there isn't even a name in Ezekiel 28. It's just King of Tyre. So. We have multiple people having the same title. We do that today. Mm -hmm. This should not be a foreign concept. We shouldn't get hung up on it. So, um, you know, again, don't use a bad argument. Uh, but so what I found to be interesting about this section is we've actually seen this before where a king dies, another king from a different nation hears of the death. And so the first king sends messengers to the new king, to the son. And the first time we saw this was in 2 Samuel 10. And it, uh, the first verse in that chapter says, After this, the king of the Amorites died, and Hanun, his son, reigned in his place. Verse 2, And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanun, son of Nakash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Amorites. So, um... We've got these similarities. We've got two kings who've died. We have two sons who ascend to the throne. We have other kings who send servants to the son in order to console or, you know, congratulate, basically convey some kind of respect to the son concerning the dead father. And mm -hmm. both sons specifically were told reign in the place of their fathers. And the servants sent with the messages are delivering messages of love and loyalty. So in 2 Samuel 10, you know, this ended badly because um, Hanun actually thought that David was sending spies into his country. And so this is whenever he takes the men and he shaves half their beard and cuts off half of their garments. And the guys are sent back and they have to convalesce in Jericho to grow back their beard so they are not uh, humiliated in front of their people. And this is what ends up in the war, creating the war against Rama. This is the war that Joab is fighting on behalf of David while David's at home and took that infamous walk on the, his rooftop and sees Bathsheba. This is what leads to the death of Uriah. 
this is what causes Bathsheba to be taken by David and for the, the death of their first child and then the birth of Solomon. So it's really mm-hmm. interesting that the first act, well, one of the first acts in the very beginning of Solomon's reign is a replay of the events that actually caused Solomon to be born. And so what happens here, instead of Solomon going, oh no, Hiram sending spies, he actually responds positively. And we're going to find out that instead of ending in a war, we see this ending in a beneficial treaty for both nations and actually increases the stature and the reputation of both kings. And so, yeah, it's really, it's a nice little reversal. I, I don't think we can make a big, big theological point out of it, but it, it's beginning to show you how when Solomon is walking with God, a lot of the things that happened with David, the things that went horribly wrong that, that led to division and war and chaos in David's reign are actually playing out in a completely opposite direction under Solomon's reign. And so um, when Solomon gets Hiram's message, he actually sends a, um, a message in return. And it's fun to note that our writer of the book really doesn't care about all of Hiram's message. He, he, he just says that Hiram loved David. That's pretty much all we know about the, about the message. Hiram's happy that David's son is reigning, but he loved David. In this case, probably what we're talking about, we're talking about the two kings respected each other. There was some type of military alliance probably going on, um, that they had some kind of understanding on how their two nations would deal with each other. We probably aren't talking about actual love like we talk about love. Um, Mm -hmm. But when the writer gives us Solomon's message to Hiram, he makes sure that we have everything Solomon says to Hiram, or at least, you know, a lot more, because in Chronicles, the reply is much more lengthy. I'll just let people go over there and read. But in verse two, it says, and Solomon sent word to Hiram, you know that David, my father, could not build a house for the name of the Lord, his God, because the warfare that, that with which his enemies surrounded him until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. So if David was a great politician who stitched ideas together with carefully chosen words, we're getting a glimpse that Solomon's probably even more brilliant uh, because he embroiders this rich design and plan that he has with these amazing words. David isn't a man of war. He isn't someone who is, um, who's had bloody hands from warfare. This is a guy who's been surrounded by his enemies. David doesn't defeat his enemies. God puts them under David's feet. Um, David isn't a ruthless warlord. He is some of the most, you know, you know say he's not a warlord who commands like some of the most elite fighting men of his time. He's the one who's been harassed from outside forces. And it's all a situation beyond his control. This is what's kept David from building the temple. And, you know, and the thing is, both versions are true. David is absolutely 100% kind of a victim of circumstance when it comes to the wars that he faced as king of Israel. But Mm -hmm. he's also, David is a warrior and he is a brilliant strategician whenever it comes to uh, warfare, and he's very good at it, and he doesn't shy away from it. So um, Solomon here is really choosing to focus on the absolute best possible way to frame his father, and that is David is a man of faith. He's a man of obedience that God blessed with victory, and very subtly within there, and it's because I am his son, because I'm now king over the kingdom my father left to me you need to help me. It's kind of the implication. Solomon's setting it up. So verse four says, but now the Lord God has given me rest on every side. There is no, neither en- adversary or misfortune. Verse five. So I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord, my God, as the Lord said to David, my father, your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place shall build the house for my name. So Solomon, it's very clear. I'm the heir. I'm the one who's going to step into this identity and destiny. Uh, I get to claim all of David's blessings and promises. 
and he he's very carefully cast himself as that dutiful son uh he's not just rightful he's not just you know the son who happened to survive all the chaos and turmoil that went before him he is actually the rightful heir and he's the heir to the vision for the temple and you know there's there's a lot of good reasons for Hiram to buy into this plan Hiram loved David David had um had one great ambition that and therefore Hiram uh, should honor his his dead friend by helping achieve that vision uh, mm. we should also note how Solomon is framing this uh at the his endeavor what he wants to do he wants to build a name a house for the name of the Lord uh not for God himself and we're going to talk about that but first I'll start start with what he calls it it's it's a house it's a bite uh, Abayat mm. is is what it's always called. It, it, it went under, when it comes out of Solomon's lap, mouth, it is not a temple. It's a house. Uh, that's going to be important. Um, and because it's called a house, it echoes God's promises to Jacob at Bethel. Actually, sorry, Jacob's promise to God at Bethel because Jacob says he will build a house for the Lord. Now, mm-hmm. Heiser devotes a whole chapter of Unseen Realm to the idea of what the name of the Lord is and the significance. The chapter is titled, um, What's in a Name? And so I'm going to be pulling a lot of information from this chapter. If you don't have that book, just go get it. Uh, it's going to make a lot of things a lot more clear. Uh, it's an easy read. If you're someone who doesn't like to read, you can get Supernatural. It's more a, a, an accessible le- uh, level. Again, not associated with Heiser in any formal way, but he's got some really great information. And I think we need to really pause to think about what's getting ready to happen because with the building of the temple, this house is by it. The, 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 what we're trying to, to see is the identity and destiny of Israel embodied in, in a very tangible way. And this becomes the foundation or the foreshadowing for our identity and destiny. So we've got to understand what the name is. And that's why I want to focus on. So we're all familiar at first with um, Moses' encounter at the burning bush where God reveals his name, Yahweh, or the Tetragrammaton, uh, to Moses. Uh, but what's less well known is the teaching on the name in Exodus 23. And Exodus 23, 20 says, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on your way and bring you to the place that I have prepared. Here's where it gets interesting. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. So the rest of the passage is going to go on to describe what the angel is going to do on behalf of the Lord for the people of Israel. And But the language, if you read it very carefully, it's going to flip back and forth between the angel and God, and they're going to get to this point where the two are just indistinguishable from each other. They, they blend and they merge, and, they, you know, and then they divide and they separate. And this flipping back and forth is found at almost every single encounter with this angel uh, who the, we find out in other passages is the angel of the Lord. Um, and it's, sorry, I've got this mosquito trying to eat me. So um, <laughs> I'm not having an easy time focusing here. But this angel of the Lord, we're going to find this is very frequent. This is this kind of flipping back and forth. And so that you see the two, kind, like I said, that melding emerging. It, it's really wild when you start to pay attention to it. Because so often when we read a story in the Bible, instead of just reading what's on the page and trying to process the words in front of us, we wind up referring back to that memory we have of the story, the one, you know, where we heard it in Sunday school. We've got the, mm-hmm. the dumbed-down version for kids, and no one ever made us pay attention to what's going on on the page. They just tried to explain it to us. So if we stop and we read these passages, whether we're talking Exodus 3 with the burning bush and the angel of the Lord being there, or Exodus 23, and then talking about the angel of the Lord there, what we end up happening, what ends up happening is we see that these two beings, God and this angel, are united at, at a very fundamental level. Mm-hmm. And so um, 
And, and what makes this particular angel special is God's name is in him. And so, you know, another thing we, we see within that passage that I just read, this angel has the power to forgive sins. Who has the power to forgive sins other than God? So, you know, you, you have to acknowledge that there's something, this isn't Gabriel, this isn't Michael, this, this angel has more power and authority than any other angel discussed in the Bible. And so the angel also has the ability to defeat the enemies, those people living in Canaan who are descendants of the Rephaim, who, who are going to oppose Israel coming in, who are going to do everything in their power to stop God's people from carrying out their destiny. This angel has the ability to drive them out supernaturally. The people don't even have to fight. They just have to be obedient and not disobey, not rebel. So in Judges mm-hmm. 2.1, we uh, have a specific declaration that this angel who had gone before is the angel of the Lord. It removes any ambiguity. And it says, now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim. And he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. Notice how he's talking. I brought you up from Egypt and I brought you into the land. I swore to you. The angel of the Lord saying he did this, not God. He's accepting the credit for it. And he goes on to explain how the people had done exactly what God told them not to do and how he's no longer going to be with the people or drive out the enemies before them. So, um, with, within Judaism, even today, there, there's a tradition call in which um, God is called by the name. If you listen to any kind of Jewish sources, what you're going to find uh, are uh, references to Hashem. That Shem in Hebrew is name. Ha is the, that definite article, the. So it's literally the name. And this is how... In these uh, Jewish writings, God refers to himself or people refer to God himself. It, it's always God is referred to as the name. And so, and this is based on the passages like we just read where God and the name or the angel are presented as indistinguishable. They're, they're, they're one, but they're unique. They're, they're the same, but they're separate. It, it's that, that mystery that we kind of sum up in the language of the Trinity. And Heiser points to a passage in Isaiah and then one in Psalm as a reason for this. In Isaiah 30, 27, 8, he says, Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with his anger in the thick rising smoke. His lips are full of fury and his tongue is like a devouring fire. Verse 28, his breath is like an overflowing stream that reaches up to um, the neck to sift the nations with a sieve of destruction and place on the jaws the people a bridle which, that leads astray. So the name is active. It's vital. It's acting in this present world, and it's acting with tangible consequences. It's capable of enacting judgment. Not God, mm-hmm. the name. <clears throat> Psalm 20, may the Lord answer you in the day of your trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. The name is a protector. So we see that the name of the Lord is a person. The angel with the name of the Lord is the angel with the Lord. And the angel of the Lord is presented as distinct, but one with God. But the name is also presented as, um, as being God. So there, like I said, it, it's that crazy melding and merging and trying to explain it is really difficult. And because even as Christians who grew up, a lot of us very familiar with this idea of the Trinity, we have a hard time trying to explain the reality of what that looks like. We have a hard right. time trying to come up with, you know, to envision it. And every illustration you come up with, there's always someone who's going to like, that's heresy, Patrick. Uh, you know, it's right. And uh, we may have to find that video. But yeah, it's like it all breaks down. All of the, the, the analogies break down because it is this incredible mystery of how can you have three in one. And in Judaism, there was, prior to Christianity, this concept known as the two powers in heaven. Uh, you can actually find this book online. It, it's Alan Siegel. It's free. You can find PDFs everywhere. Worth reading. But um, anyhow, I, the, 
it was common in ancient Judaism. I should point this out. It was very common in ancient Judaism until Christianity came along and really made a big deal about Jesus being one with the Father, you know, kind of like Jesus did. And then basically Jewish theology is like, no, we, we can't handle that. We, we have to figure out some way to, to separate that and not allow there to be any kind of division, what they considered division, within the Godhead. And so um, in a lot of the stuff that where God and the angel of the Lord were considered to be God together and separately, now the angel of the Lord gets downgraded to being Michael in order to avoid this kind of quote-unquote heresy. But um, I'll read one more verse. It's Psalms 27, 20, verse 7. That some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And, you know, it's really tempting to jump into a full-scale breakdown of Deuteronomy 12 because this chapter gives us the commands for, for building the temple. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. specifically, you know, long before the temple has ever been built. Um, if you um, believe that Moses wrote Deuteronomy, then we're looking at least almost 500 years, maybe even longer. Um, we'll worry about the dating of Deuteronomy later. but. Um, Anyhow, I'm going to, and, you know, of course, that's pertinent because what we're getting ready to go into is Solomon building the temple. But I'm going to limit myself to a few pertinent passages. Um, so the chapter opens with a command to destroy the high places, which, of course, we already talked about. We spent a lot of time on Solomon offering that sacrifice in the high place. And, you know, was that a good idea? Was it a bad idea? We went there, we talked about that, but we know that the Canaanites worship their gods in the high places. And God says, um, the people shall not worship their God this way. Uh, that's verse four in, in chapter, in Deuteronomy 12. Verse five says, but you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name. So very pertinent for so many reasons. It fits right into the flow of our story. Worth reading the whole chapter. It's not that long. Then go, God goes on to make a distinction between how it's practiced, not just, um, you know, in the desert dwelling. They, when they're wandering around in the desert, there's certain rules and protocols for that point in time. And then, um, but when they move into the, to the uh, actual nation of Israel, now it's time to, to solidify this. It's time to formalize how God will be worshipped in his own land. And so this is going to happen specifically, it says, when God gives people or gives Israel rest from their enemies all around so that they can live in safety. And so this kind of, you know, when I read that, I, I was thinking that really does speak to the idea of that big question where we did spend all that time talking about whether or not Solomon should have worshipped in this high place, whether it was appropriate, and how much ink was spilled on that particular topic. The answer is right here in Deuteronomy 12. I mean, I, I, again, I, I'm kind of blown away because, um, People act like there's some kind of mystery to be solved whenever the the issue has already been addressed multiple times within the scripture. And here is God says, hey, the the worship at the high places for me is going to happen when there's rest all around. Peace from your enemies. That's when you're going to stop doing that. So Solomon actually was still well within the Torah to to worship the high place. Because that peace from the enemies all around doesn't happen until Solomon's on the throne. But moving on, just one of those little tidbits that always is nice to point out. When God shows them the place, uh, the Macomb, uh, addressed in that previous, um, we, sorry, we addressed the Macomb in a previous episode. The, it's the place, it's that specific spot that God chooses for his activities to, to be fulfilled and performed. And you only get to do them where God shows you they should be done. And when God shows them the place, then the, and only then can the temple be built and then can the practices um, be abandoned. And I, I think this sheds some light on also another issue, David being a man of war, because, you know, I've typically heard this as an indictment against David that because he is a man of war, he couldn't build a temple uh, because there's something deeply inherently flawed with his um, 
with his character. And however, Deuteronomy 12 presents peace and safety as a gift from God, which is exactly what Solomon just said. So God tells us the purpose of the temple in Deuteronomy 12, verse 11, says, then the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you. And then it goes on into the various activities conducted at the temple. So the temple is created as a place where the name will dwell, and the name dwells in the temple of the Lord. So the temple is a place for the, where the angel of the Lord will be present. And that's manifest, and we're, we could get into this, and we'll talk about this when we get further into First Kings, about the Shekinah glory that is manifest in the temple. Because the temple was actually, I thought this was cool, when, I know we aren't there yet, the temple was specifically designed to, to highlight that, that presence of God as manifest in the Shekinah. But in Judaism, the distinction uh, provided is a way to understand God's, was, no, sorry, it allows it allowed the people to make this this distinction between God as you know creator and ruler of the universe who's omnipresent who cannot be contained and still have him dwelling and fulfilling those promises to dwell within the specific location and to have this house where he lived so you could have God in heaven but then you could also have God in the temple both were equally true and both were equally vital for uh, for Judaism to to be all that it claimed to be because if mm -hmm. you don't have God in the temple what is a temple and and that's the thing every ancient religion understood this they knew that you had to somehow have your God present and manifest within the temple and usually that was um it was um what's the word I'm looking for accomplished <laughs> it was accomplished by having an idol in, in Judaism you don't have an idol so how is God going to manifest his presence to be there where the people can actually witness him if there's no image, if there's no idol? And so this is why we have to have something bigger, greater, more powerful, more wonderful than just a wooden or stone image. We have the presence of the Lord, at Lord as manifest through the name and in the presence of the uh, angel of the Lord. It also, like I said, it, it totally destroyed that idea that God could be contained. Mm -hmm. Now, very interesting is that after the destruction of the temple, and you know, we're looking way forward, this is you know, 70 AD, Jesus prophesied about the destruction of the temple, it did happen. And you know, all of a sudden we have this religion that is based on the strict adherence to religious protocol and ritual within the temple, having to figure out what that looks like when you can't go to a temple? What happens when you can't make those sacrifices and you can't bring your offerings before the Lord? What, you know, how are you even Jewish at that point in time? And especially if that's the house where if God himself had dwelt there, your God would have been considered to be destroyed. Mm -hmm. So this allowed them this, this, um, this belief and this ideology of, and distinction between the, the name and God himself allowed them to make that separation where God could continue to manifest himself and, manif and be present in the life of Jews even after the temple was destroyed. And this is whenever the rabbis began making um, the formulations of uh, acts of loving kindness were like sacrifices, and they actually took the place of sacrifices until the temple could be reestablished. So, um, but, you know, it, it really... It became a pivotal idea that is still very much a part of Judaism. And the, the groundwork for that, we're going to see that not only is in the fact that Solomon's making a house for the name of the Lord, when Solomon prays at the, um, what am I trying to say? Whenever the, whenever the temple is completed, he actually redefines what the temple is for in a way that's completely new in Judaism but became the standard of practice, and we'll go into that. So, um, mm -hmm. but yeah, we've got some specifics on the temple to get into, so that, that'll be fun, because there's 20 different interpretations for every hook, drawing, <laughs> statue, <laughs> and I'm going to give you the best that I can get, but anyway, more on that later. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, and 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 speaking of the temple, and I, I may bring this up whenever we go get back into it, but we recently, um, one of the cool things that I got to do recently was go to uh, one of the large oil mansions here in Oklahoma, uh, over in Ponca City. There's a, it's a, the, I'll think of it here in a little bit. Um, the, uh, but it, it was a, it was this mansion that was owned by this. Uh, guy who came out to Oklahoma to find oil and you walk into it and it's it's just amazing. I mean there there and I, I guarantee you like the way we do architecture in church is just if you go to or something like this you'll be like you'll be very sad because there's symbolism in the house uh all around. Um some of it um they're not sure what exactly it was supposed <laughs> to symbolize. Some of it they are um and uh Marland uh the Marland yeah. mansion in in uh Ponca City that's what it is. I couldn't think of the when name. When you forgot I forgot. But, so. <laughs> yeah, well and the the cool thing about it is um is you walk around and it is just overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that I found was was interesting is as you go through, if you get if you get a chance to go on a guided tour, definitely do that because there's, yeah, you look around and it's really pretty. But if you go through and the tour guide's kind of showing you why this is there or why that's there, you by the time you're done and you get um, you get the whole story of what happened and how everything changed. I mean, it really affects you being able to see these physical objects that represent this story now. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's um, just so so having something like that to to tie you to some history or to a greater story, it really changes perspective. And uh, and again, I know this is probably has nothing compared to the the beauty of of the first temple based on what I've heard, but whenever you go through uh, a place like that, it does affect you. Um, and, and it's, it's just an overwhelming, just, I mean, you got kind of a sense of, of awe and a little bit of wonder about how could something so grand come about, you know, and it's, it's really interesting. So if you have any place like that, go, go, uh, go check. If you have any place like that nearby, go check it out. Um, and, and let that, sense of awe and wonder kind of inspire you to the the biblical story. Yes. Well, yeah, you came over to my place after you made the tour, and I think you talked about it all weekend. Uh, it's like, oh, yeah, I remember this, and then there was this thing, and then there was that thing, and then... <laughs> I mean, it was wild. I mean, I, I, I'm not going to go into the entire history of it here on the podcast, but, uh, you, you know, check out the the um, the Marland Mansion and Marland Oil. The stories behind that, and uh, it really changed a lot of people's lives. And mm-hmm. I mean, to this day, Ponca City is still the the crossroads of the American oil pipelines. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, it's just an amazing uh, history here. So anyway, but, <laughs> so. That that's all. Just kind of connecting this idea of the temple to like a, a a real life experience I had recently. Well, and let's face it, most of us go to church in either a converted storefront, a metal building that's dressed up a little bit, or you know, a a building that was built a hundred years ago out of you know, whatever was the cheapest to build with at that point in time. Um, mm-hmm. So. I, there, there's a there's a still a few churches around that have some nice hand carved uh, woodwork there, and some statuaries and you know there are and you know and I, and I don't want to discount that because the, but there's a, a whole language to building church churches and cathedrals that is really involved and in depth and it does go back to this idea that everything you put in a place of worship should have meaning and it should be an, an inspired vision. Uh, and, you know, that's exactly what David and, and Solomon, they went into this with. They had an inspired vision of what it should look like. And so, uh, you know, I do think we, we miss something when we go into a place of worship and there, it's kind of flat. Uh, there's nothing mm-hmm. to inspire the, the imagination. And, you know, my, the artist side of me is like, yes, uh, worship centers should just like spin your brain around and, and draw your eyes up and, you know, lift you out of yourself. Uh, the practical side of me is like, feed the hungry with all the money you're wasting. Uh, and so, you know, there's always that tension there. 
And mm-hmm. so, mm-hmm. you know, do we give God the best or do we, we use it to serve others uh, in a in a very tangible way, what some would consider a practical way, but I'm not, you know, there's that tension. There's just tension. But so. No, I, I, I definitely feel that tension too, because there is, a, and I, and it, and it's, I can see the argument both ways mm-hmm. that, um, that there is, you know, well, we should, we should be practical with our money and the idea that we shouldn't, um, there is also, you know, for some, for some Protestants, there is that fear of idolatry, um, and idol making, but. And we can that debunk found, that when we get into the next chapter. Just going to say. Well, <laughs> I, I know that, and you know that. But I, as I was about to say, uh, <laughs> with, with great art, you aren't thinking, when you first see it, typically, you aren't thinking about that object. Yeah. I mean, you might be, but you're seeing a story. Yeah, great art punches uh, and, you in the gut, and it it takes you on an involuntary journey into something surprising and amazing, and sometimes horrifying. And uh, it, it's supposed to do that. It's designed to do that. That's what separates great art from kitsch. And you know, kitsch mm-hmm. is which, what you hang over your sofa to make you feel good. So, right, right, which. Which actually, um, I want to do some looking and see if there's any works out there about um, corporate worship as performance art. Um. Mm, <laughs> I want to say there is, because I, you know, when, uh, Joe's going to laugh, because yes, I'm bringing up my thesis. Because uh, that was, my, my thesis was over Bezalel, who built the tabernacle, which plays into building the temple. And there is, there's actually a really great book out there called Good Taste, Bad Taste, and Christian Taste. And mm-hmm. uh, because the Christian taste is, is, oh gosh, as a whole, we Christians consume more garbage, mass-produced stuff because it has a fish logo than anything else. Okay, we 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 just don't have the ability because, in part, it's that fear, that graven image. We haven't been taught how to appreciate the the art in a visual form. We, we think mm. somehow because we're not supposed to create an image of God that if we just avoid putting it on paper or making some kind of stone rep- or wood representation, we, we've done that. We forget that all of our worship songs, all of our t-shirt, all of our paraphernalia that, that somehow presents Christianity, therefore God, to a culture is actually creating an image of God. It's kind of mm. unavoidable. The, the prohibition is not just, hey, don't make any kind of image. It, it's so harsh to make you consider every image that you may even accidentally put out there for the world to engage in. It, it's supposed to make you mindful of whether your sermon presents an image of God that is accurate, that your, your dress presents an image of God that is accurate, your words uh, you know, that bumper sticker on your car, how is that going to to help or hinder someone from understanding and perceiving who God is? And so it, it's not just a matter of, hey, let's avoid making some kind of picture. It, it, it's, it's a matter of how do we present God well? Because the, the tabernacle and the temple both contain every visual art style known to man, aside from perhaps modern art, but abstract, impressionism, realism, all of that's in the tabernacle and the temple and in the the imagery of the tabernacle. Why? Because it presented a story, like you were saying, and the story is the story of Eden, when God mm-hmm. walked with humanity. And so we're going to get into that. But um, yeah, uh, we got totally side, sidetracked uh, several times, which side sidetracked side yeah i was gonna say side railed but that's wrong yeah derailed yeah, all of that so, together we're, we're a little feisty this morning oh my gosh I, i'm <laughs> blaming a lack of sleep okay <laughs> that's that's just where i am uh, black is black asleep i started to say black asleep black coffee i see the words are like colliding like trains in my brain now so so <laughs> and something really interesting too is like um it, it, and what's really funny to me is there is um, 
I, there wasn't a lot of it. There wasn't quite as much as I expected in this mansion from the 1920s. Uh, there wasn't as much Art Deco as I expected, but even the Art Deco pieces were really good. <laughs> and generally, I think of Art Deco as like, it's not quite kitschy because it is like most of it the is is just over the top mm-hmm. insane, mm-hmm. you know. Um, as far as the scale and the mm-hmm. and and it the way it permeates a space that was made in the twenties, you know. So there's kind of like a a dated quality about it, but even that stuff, you go, wow, that's really good. It's still very grand. And yeah. yeah. So yeah. I don't know what made me think of that. You, oh, you were talking about every style being represented, and I was like, "Would <laughs> have any Art Deco by chance?" Um, Probably but, not. Yeah, but, I mean, as I, far yeah. as like the major I, categories, I mean, and you know, of course, photorealism isn't there. But you know, the the thing, right? The thing is, you know, the idea wasn't that you were worshiping the temple. It's like you were talking about when you see a great piece of artwork, you don't go, "Oh, I'm thinking about the artwork and everything it took to create this and the people who built it." And you, no, your first thought it should just kind of be a sweeping away of preconceptions, uh, of misconceptions, of assumptions. Mm-hmm. It, it it should just push all of that aside, and then you should begin to have to grope for the underlying story and begin to work for it. And because the, the first thought is to lure you in and hook you. So you want to dive deeper. If a piece of art mm-hmm. gives you all the information you need to appreciate it when you first look at it and you, you take one glance and you know, everything it's not good art. It, it, right. it's, it's not, right. you should be able to wrestle with it and there should be enough there to wrestle with, with, to keep you busy. And the temple and the tabernacle both did that because when you looked at these places, what you wound up doing, you began thinking about what would it have been like to be in Eden? You know, if this is what right. it was like to have God in this one spot where I have to travel and go to, what would it be like to live there? What would it be like to, to, be among the trees and God's creation and explore that in his presence. And that's what it was supposed to do. And, you know, and I have to wonder, what do we as Christians in our own kind of worship, what do we have to do to kind of, you know, instill that same sense of awe and wonder and mystery and, uh, you know, and craving and desire to be in God's presence that the temple and the tabernacle seem to inspire and the people describing their experiences within the Bible. Because I, I don't think we, we have that. I, I, I think sometimes we're just way, way too casual. And maybe it's because we don't appreciate art. Maybe it's because mm-hmm. we haven't learned how to stop and let art you know, permeate our senses in a way that can move us into a different plane of awareness. So anyway, yep. yeah. Have I um, talked enough about art? So. <laughs> uh, well, I imagine not, probably not, because we're probably going to get into it a lot more over the next few episodes. But yeah. I'm, I'm really excited to see because I haven't studied the temple a whole lot, so this is going to be, um, going to be cool. Yeah. Um, and and again, uh, if you are in a place that has great architecture nearby, maybe an old cathedral, maybe, uh, maybe you're in Oklahoma and the fanciest things you got are oil mansions. <laughs> um. Go check one out. The uh, the Philbrook is a great example of an old oil mansion. I mean, there's, uh, or if you're in Kansas City, go check out the go check out the Nelson Atkins Art Museum. Mm-hmm. That building alone is beautiful, and then it's covered in amazing artwork from, uh, you know, the ancient Mesopotamian era to modern day. Mm-hmm. Um, go check it out. So, yeah, and the Nelson Atkins is free, by the way, guys. So go. <laughs> Go look at that. Anyway, um, I I think that's probably did did were, did I interrupt a point you were in the middle of maybe with this but whole I've forgotten. Or, so okay, yeah. well if well stay tuned. <laughs> um, the uh, if if you uh, if if you didn't finish it up, we'll we'll come back to it at the beginning of next episode and we'll get it figured out. I just I got really excited about uh, you know it's like hey I had a real life experience that tied into <laughs> some of what we're about to talk about. Uh, doesn't happen terribly often. Um, what you don't have many things that re- that coincide with 1000 BCE daily life. <laughs> I don't have a lot of people out to kill me. Um, <laughs> a scratch that probably isn't going to kill you. Uh, yeah, you slaughter your own yeah. dinner t- last night. 
No, no, not so much. Not all the time, anyway. So, anyway, <laughs> that being said, uh, everyone, uh, come back next week, and we'll figure out what we were talking about. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. And I uh, hope everyone has a good time. And uh, in the meantime, hit us up on the website, Raven Creek SC, and the social media, Raven Creek SC, uh, you know, Raven Creek Social Club. That's where you find us. If you can, if you can work the Googles, you can probably locate us. Yeah. So. Anyway, we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.